last week that we uh, would speak about the evidences, the proof, the testimonies about Jesus' resurrection, or about his deity. Jesus was, and is, fully divine and fully human. We know from the Bible that his deity was not lessened, not diminished, when he took on his humanity. Though we can read in Philippians 2, beginning at verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, counted not being on an equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. Fully deity, and yet he became fully man. There was no curtailing of his divine powers when he took upon himself human nature. Colossians 2 and 9 says that in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Paraphrased, for in Christ there is all of God in a human body. By his incarnation, Jesus assumed the subordinate position of a son to the Father. He could say, I and the Father are one, John 10 and 30. But with reference to his voluntary subordination, he could say, for the Father is greater than I. And that's also in John 14, 28. It is the Father that sins. It's the Son who is sent. And Jesus says this over and over again in the book of John. It is the Father that gives, and it's the Son that receives. It is the Father that ordains, that appoints, and it is the Son that fulfills. When Jesus ascended back to heaven, he did not cast off his humanity. After his ascension, seated at the right hand of God, the Bible affirms, that he is still man. First Timothy 2 and 5, there is one God, one mediator between God and man, men, himself man, Christ Jesus. Or Acts 17, 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God hath overlooked, but now he commandeth men that they all everywhere repent inasmuch as he hath appointed a day in which he shall judge the world in righteousness by the man that he hath appointed or ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Jesus is still referred to as a man in heaven. He still has his human qualities about him. And I think Christians should take comfort in knowing that our high priest is a man and that we're going to be judged by a man, not just a man, but he still has that human nature about him. The incarnation of Jesus was the eternal and, un, or, and indissoluble deity and humanity in one person. Now let's look at some of the proofs, the evidence, the testimony that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is deity. 
First thing we'll notice is that he's sinless. Never committed sin. Now that's, that's hard for somebody that has a human body like Jesus had. To think of somebody living 33 years here upon this earth and being subject to the things that Jesus was subject to and we're told that he was subject to all the temptations that we are and yet remain sinless. That points to his deity. That Jesus challenged his enemies one day. Which of you convicted me of sin? Now they've been scrutinizing his life just to find one little speck, one little flaw. They couldn't find it. They couldn't respond and answer his challenge because he was sinless. And they couldn't find anything. Even the inspired writers spoke about his moral perfection. We refer to Hebrews 4.15, where we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one who has been tempted in all things like as we yet without sin. That's Paul. Peter, 1 Peter 2.21 and 22, For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin. Neither was a guile found in his mouth. How about 1 John 3 and 5? In him, Christ, is no sin. So generation after generation of his enemies, they have sought and searched through the scriptures in vain to discover just one little flaw. And that's without success. And so we say that the unique and the perfect character of Jesus demands something more than mere humanity. He is deity. Secondly, Jesus is eternal. He had no beginning. Though people think, well, he was born in Bethlehem. That's true. That's when he became incarnated. That's when he took upon himself flesh. But Genesis 1 and 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That includes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In that very same chapter, Jehovah says, let us, that's plural, make man in our image, and that's plural. Jesus was here because he was the creator. He antedated, antedated all created things. John 1, 1, 2, and 3, in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things have been created by him, without him was not anything created. Now we drop down to verse 14, we read that the Word, that we're talking about being God, and having created all things, the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory and his virtue as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning of time. In fact, being eternal, he had no beginning. And yet the JWs say that he was a created being. This is Jehovah's Witness, this is false teaching. He was created and then he in turn created everything else. Now to substantiate that, they add the word other four times in Colossians 1. Let me read a few of the verses, not the whole text again. 
And so will they insert other. Beginning at verse um, 15, 16. For in him were all things created. No, they've inserted. For in him were all other things created. See, God the Father created Jesus, and then he created everything else. That's their teaching that's false. And so they have to insert a word four times in a couple of verses here. In the heavens and upon the earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things have been created through him. They've added all other things have been created through him and unto him. And he is before all things. Oh, he's before all other things, they say. And in him all things consist. That is, all other things consist. Of course, that, uh, that is false. Jesus Christ is eternal. He was not created. When Jesus used the term, I am, and he used it on other various occasions, he's describing God's eternal, independent existence. You remember in John 8, 24, except ye believe that I am? Now, the translators have inserted the word he. It's not in the ritual. What Jesus said was, except ye believe that I am, you shall all die in your sins. For that I am, God used to describe himself referring to his eternal existence. You remember when he came to Moses. Moses, I need you to go back and to lead my people out of Egyptian bondage. And Moses began to offer excuses. One was, well now, they're going to say, who sent you? What's, what's your God's name? <clears throat> and to that, God replied, I am am that I am. That's Exodus 3.14. And then the very next verse, verse 15 says that Moses was to tell the people that I am sent him to deliver them. And so when Jesus used the same term, he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm Jehovah. And he is. Jehovah is not, and we'll not get to this, but we will in the next session. Um, doesn't refer to just the Father. It's the Godhead that's called Jehovah. And that's referred to Jesus on occasions. All three. So, Jesus used the past tense. We're still talking about John 5, 29. When Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. There it is again. He's using the past tense to describe Abraham's birth before Abraham was born. Then he uses the continuous present tense to describe his existence. I am. He's always in the present. When God looks down upon the earth, he just sees a little speck upon eternity. There's no beginning, there's no end. There is to time and to space and to our existence, but not to God. He said, I am. 1 Timothy 1.17, we're talking about God's eternal nature. Jesus is described now under the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. One other passage, Revelation 22 and 13. 
Jesus is described as the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's talking about his eternal nature. And so, not only is Jesus sinless, eternal, but he's omniscient. He knows all things. And he manifested this supernatural power with reference to Nathaniel. Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover. He had selected Philip, and then Philip turned to Nathaniel to say, We found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And when Nathaniel used that word Nazareth, he said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. And so as Philip is directing Nathaniel to Jesus, Jesus calls out, Nathaniel. <clears throat> said, I knew thee when you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip came to you. And that's when Nathanael confessed his faith in the Lord as the king of Israel. Also, he is omniscient. It said that Jesus knew what was in man. In fact, John 2, 24 and 25, he would not trust himself to men because he knew what was in man. And in an example we'll look at a little bit later on, <clears throat> maybe soon, <laughs> anyway, later, he said to this paralytic, uh, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes, Pharisees were listening and they were reasoning in their heart. They didn't murmur, they didn't speak up, they weren't murmuring among themselves. Jesus knew what the reasonings were in their heart because he is omniscient. What about the Samaritan woman? There they were going on their way back to Galilee, passing through Samaria. Time to eat. They stop at Sychar. The apostles go in to get something to eat. And then the woman comes to get her water, to fill her water pot, as we've seen. Well, in the conversation, he convinces her that he is that Messiah. She runs back to tell the people. She tells him that he knew all things that ever I did. Never met her before, and yet he knew her history. That's the omniscience that Jesus had. And here's what the disciples said, John 16 and verse 30. Now know we that thou knowest all things. And needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Now, let's think about this application of his omniscience. How many of us have secrets that nobody else knows? Well, nobody but God. Romans 2 and 16 tells us that Jesus is going to sit upon the throne and he's going to judge the secrets of men's hearts. Also, when we turn to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia receive an epistle directed by the Lord to thee. And in each case he says, I know thy works. Jesus is all-knowing. And also he's omnipotent. That is, he's all-powerful. There's no limit to what he can do. He created all things. I think we've already indicated that. In Genesis 1, John 1, Colossians 1. But not only did he create everything, but he upholds everything. He sustains all of his creation, doesn't, doesn't uh, become a chaos. 
And that's why scientists can figure out exactly when they can take a spaceship and get to the moon. And when they can come back. Because they figure out God's laws of nature and he sustains those laws. Hebrews 1 and 3 tells us that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And he revealed his power over nature by healing all the illnesses that were brought to him. You remember time after time wherever he went, they brought those who were sick, infirm, paralytic, whatever, and he healed them all. That takes divine power. Also, he was raising the dead, walking on the water, ascending back to heaven, and think about his power over the demonic world. We're talking about his omnipotence. Well, to carry that on just a step further, Jesus has the power of life and death. He said nobody can take his life from him. Now we say, well, what about the Romans? What about the Jewish leaders that requested, well, commanded, demanded his death on the cross? He said, I didn't have to do that. John tells us that he could have called five legions of angels. Now, generally, a legion of Roman soldiers was about 5,000 men. So 12 times 5, 60,000. We sang about he could call 10,000. He could call 60,000, according to John. He has the power to lay down his life. He said, I have the power to take it again, John 10, 17 and 18. We know that he restored physical life to Jairus' 12-year-old daughter. He was coming into Nain, and he met this funeral procession. Who died? Well, it was the son of the widow. Jesus stopped the funeral. Spoke to the young man, and he sat up, was alive again. And what about his resurrecting his good friend Lazarus in Bethany? John 11. And he's going to raise you and me. We turn to John 5, 28 and 29. Jesus said, marvel not at this. For the hour, that's one hour. The hour cometh when all that are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment or condemnation. There are folks who talk about two resurrections, three resurrections. That is, at the end of the time. One resurrection. Everybody's going to be raised. Jesus has the power to do that. And not only will he restore physical life and did, but newness of life to everyone who becomes a Christian. In Romans 6 and 4, Paul speaks about our being raised in newness of life. When we are raised from the waters of baptism. When we obey the gospel. We have a new life. We're, we're a new creature, a new creation, as the Bible speaks about it. Ephesians 2 and 1, And ye did he make alive when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Everyone before he becomes a Christian is dead, spiritually speaking. But Jesus has the power to raise him up, spiritually. Give him a new life. Also, we're talking about his deity. <clears throat> Jesus forgave sins and he continues to do so. 
Every Christian has had every sin he ever committed washed away. We mentioned briefly the paralytic that was brought, carried by four friends to Jesus when he'd come back to Capernaum. Couldn't get through the door because of the crowds. They carried him up on top, opened up the roof, and laid him down in Jesus' presence. And what does Jesus say to this man? He saw their faith. He said, man, thy sins are forgiven. And as we mentioned, the scribes and the Pharisees were thinking, they were reasoning in their hearts, this man's blaspheming. No one can forgive sins but God only. And he says, your sins are forgiven thee. Well, of course, they were right on one count, that only God can forgive sins. They were wrong in thinking that Jesus was not God. Well, Jesus knew what they were saying. He said, why reason ye these things in your hearts? And he asked them, which is easier to say? Thy sins are forgiven thee? Or to say, arise, take up thy bed and walk. But so thou shalt know, notice this, that the Son of Man hath authority on earth to forgive sins, I say unto thee, arise. Take up thy couch and go into thy house. And immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay and departed into his house, glorifying God. He received not only the forgiveness of his sins, but health. And let me mention one more thing. Jesus accepted worship. Angels cannot, could not. Men cannot, could not. Well, a lot of them accept vain worship from, from different people. But God alone is to be worshipped. You remember when Satan, after Jesus' baptism, tempted him in the wilderness? He said, when he showed him all the glories of the kingdoms in the world, he said, Now if you'll just fall down and worship me, Satan talking, these will all be yours. All things will be yours. What did Jesus say? Get thee hence, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. They're going to worship Satan. Can't worship any man. When Peter came to Cornelius' house over there in Caesarea, Cornelius answered the door. And when he saw Peter, he fell down on his knees and worshipped Peter, or he started to. Peter reached over, took hold of him, and raised him up. He said, I also am a man. I'm not to be worshipped. How about the angels? Well, about the last part of well, the last page of my Bible, and John, and I, John, and he that heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the foot of the angel that showed me these things. And he saith unto me, the angel speaking to John, See thou do it not. I am a fellow servant with thee and with all thy brethren, the prophets. And with them they keep the words of this book, Worship God. But Jesus received worship. He is God. He is to be worshipped. 
He was here in this life, and he will be later. Well, there are other evidences we'll look at at another time. But when Jesus accepted the worship of the leper, after the Sermon on the Mount, went into this synagogue in Capernaum, healed this leper, and the leper worshipped him. When the apostles, they were trying to make their way in the, ro- in the boat across the Sea of Galilee, it was about three, four, five in the morning, and they saw Jesus walking. They thought he was a ghost, and they were frightened. Jesus said, don't be afraid. It is I. And that's when Peter said, Well, Lord, if it's you, let me walk to you. Come on. And so he steps out and takes, I don't know how many steps, and then he starts to sink. And Jesus reaches out, takes a hold of him, lifts him up. They both get in the boat, and the wind calms, the storm's over, and the apostles worship Jesus. The man that was blind, John 9, that he healed, when he realized that it was Jesus, he fell down and worshipped him. The women after the resurrection, they came to the tomb to prepare the Lord's body to complete it for his burial. And the angels that appeared there said, why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here. But go and tell his disciples that he'll meet them in Galilee like he's already told them. And so they turned to leave and they're met by Jesus. And they all fall down at Jesus' feet and worship him. And we'll mention Thomas, who wasn't present the first time Jesus appeared after his resurrection to the apostles. And um, he said, I, unless I can see the prints in his hands and in his side, I won't believe. Well, the next Lord's Day, they were all together, including Thomas, and the Lord just appeared. The doors were locked. And he walked right over to Thomas. He said, Thomas, reach hither thy hand and touch my hand. Reach into thy hand and put it in my side and be not faithless but believing. And then Thomas said, My Lord and my God. He was convinced and he worshipped the Lord. The angels were commanded to worship him in Hebrews 1.6 and when he again bringeth in the firstborn into the world, he said, and let all the angels of God worship him. The Lord is in heaven, the right hand of God, being worshipped. And here we are worshipping him. He is dead. He is the Son of God, and he's going to be our judge. Are you ready? Have you had your sins washed away by his blood? If you've not, may we encourage you to give your life to him. That's what it takes. And in a public way, confess your faith in him. And in your heart, repent of all your sins. And then be buried with him. It's a burial. In baptism, for the remission. That's the purpose. For the remission of your sins. And then when you're raised to walk in newness of life, you'll have your eye always, or should, focused on him. Throughout this life, worship him, serve him, live for him, be faithful. You've not completed your obedience to the gospel. Or if you have another need, would you come as together we stand and sing?